Hello, dear listener. Today we have a first on the Movie Brewer podcast. For the first time ever, it was the beer I'm about to drink that led me to the movie. Usually, I have a film in mind and I go hunting through the aisles of my local liquor store looking for a beer that in some way ties in, has some kind of pairing. But in this case, by chance, I came across Lamplighter Brewery's Outside Bruges, and I knew the episode that I had to do. In Bruges is a 2008 dark comedy by first-time filmmaker Martin McDonough that has always been an inspiration and guiding light for me whenever I try and write my own scripts, and is easily one of the most well-crafted films I've ever seen. But, of course, before we get into it, let's crack a beer. Spoilers ahead, this is the Movie Brewer Podcast. Sadly, the beer I have in front of me is indeed not the aforementioned Outside Bruges. Outside Bruges was a beer I saw listed months ago on the Lamplighter Brewery website, and it has sadly run its course. The beer I do have in front of me is called In Bruges, which, albeit slightly on the nose, is also a beer from Lamplighter Brewery. Lamplighter is located in Cambridge, Massachusetts. It is a 10,000-square-foot brewery, and it's housed in a former auto repair shop called Metric System. Uh, Originally announced in 2014, Lamplighter officially opened its doors in November of 2016. It's run by Kayla Marville and AC Jones, and since its launch, they have worked hard to expand their operations, building not only a brewery floor, but two tap rooms and a partner coffee shop called Longfellow's. They don't really have a flagship beer per se. Uh, They tend to continually refresh their beers on tap, which unfortunately is why I was never able to get my hands on outside Bruges. In Bruges is a Belgian, lol, triple that comes in at 9.5% ABV. So stick with me. I don't really understand why I keep picking these beers that are just going to mess with me, is what I'll say. A Belgian triple is usually served in either a goblet or a tulip glass. I myself have a tulip glass in front of me. And we're going to try this out. We're going to see what what we're going to get. I'm told I should be looking for notes of white grape, peppercorn, and orange rind. Uh, And a couple of the reviews I've read have said to brace for the sweet. So here we go. Okay. So I've got this poured out. It's very clear. It's a, it's a nice solid amber color. Not a lot of head. Um, There was a little bit when I first poured it, but it's dissipating quickly. Aroma-wise, aroma-wise, it definitely has some fruity hints to it, but also I'm a little bit worried that might just be a a smell of alcohol there. Um, So I'm going to go ahead and take my first sip and see how we do. There is sweetness in there, to be sure. 
The sweetness is kind of overpowering what I think is the alcohol taste, but it's actually very well balanced. I, I'm, I don't feel like we're swinging too harshly in either direction when it comes to uh, the overall taste. And, and here, I'm going to have another sip. Yeah, that's actually really well balanced, and I may or may not have just spilled some of it all over myself. Um, I guess I will continue my tradition of pouring one out for Harambe. So, <clears throat> um, in that we're talking about a movie called In Bruges and drinking a beer called In Bruges, I feel like I would be remiss if I didn't at least a little bit talk about Belgian beers and what that means and what that means to the, the beer industry. Um, for a lot of people, saying Belgian beer is tantamount to saying French wine. They are by many credited as having some of the greatest beer in the world, and they've been doing it for a very, very long time. Beer has been made in Belgium since long before it was Belgium. To go into the history, back in the 12th century, the Catholic Church actually granted permission for French and Flemish abbeys, uh, abbeys being like monasteries and monks, et cetera, et cetera, to brew beer in order to raise money for the church. At the time, beer was a relatively low alcohol beverage and served as a sanitary alternative to water. Back in those times, you couldn't get clean water and the alcohol in beer actually served as a disinfectant. And from that origin began the tradition of both Abbey and Trappist beers. Trappist beers and Trappist breweries are bound by very specific regulations. There are only 21 true Trappist breweries in the world, and only one of them is in the United States. Uh, that one being Spencer Brewery, out of St. Joseph's Abbey, which is actually just down the road from me in Spencer, Massachusetts. I considered going there for this week's beer, but come on, the names are the same. So from those origins of Trappist and Abbey brewing, beer grew into a cultural phenomenon over the next seven centuries in Belgium. The yeast used in Belgian beer is often what gives it its defining taste and characteristics, but it can also be heavily influenced by the type of fermentation. There are very specific ways that Belgians brew their beer, be it through cool fermentation or warm fermentation or wild fermentation, which I've talked about before on this podcast. Um, you know, there's a lot of different kinds of ways that they'll go for it. Triples, like the one I have here, tend to be on the high end of the ABV spectrum. Like I said, this one's a 9.5, but not so overwhelming that you can't handle them. And I kind of knew that going in, but I'm actually really pleasantly surprised that that's how well-balanced this uh, this beer has, has turned out, even despite the fact that, hey, it wasn't brewed in Belgium. Um, good things are in Cambridge. The other major qualifier about Belgian beers is that they are very specific about the shape of the glass that they are served in. I mentioned at the top that these are usually done in chalices or tulip glasses. And you think of like the most well-known Belgian beers and you think things like Stella Artois or Hogarden or things like that, all of which have their own specific 
kinds of glass that they that they're supposed to be poured in. A lot of times in Belgium, if you order a beer and the bartender doesn't have that specific glass, the beer will come with an apology that this is not the way this beer was meant to be enjoyed. So I digress. Anyway, this beer I do have in a tulip glass and I will enjoy my in Bruges while talking about in Bruges. That one might take the cake as the worst segue thus far on this podcast. So I'm going to start off with a quick synopsis of the movie. I will say, as I always do, if you haven't seen it, please go watch this movie. It's one of my favorites, and it's worth a couple hours. I think it's overall it's two hours and 12 minutes long, and you'll be riveted the whole time. But let's do a quick rundown here. After a job goes sideways, veteran hitman Ken and his rookie partner Ray are told to go hide out in the medieval city of Bruges which is in Belgium. While they wait for their boss, Harry, to call with instructions as to what to do next, the two sightsee across the city, much to young Ray's dismay. When Harry finally does come calling, the three men's philosophical principles come into inevitable conflict, and Bruges ends up caught in the crossfire. That's a very vague summary. I know I do, for whatever reason, try to not give too much away in these synopses, but here we are. Let's talk about the history of Imbruge real quick. It's impossible to talk about its history without talking about its writer and director, Martin McDonough. Now, you may know Martin McDonough from his most recent work. In 2018, he put out the film Three Billboards Outside Ebbing, Missouri, which was subsequently nominated for seven Oscars, two of which it brought home. Before that film and before In Bruges, he was most known as a playwright. He was known for his early plays set in the Irish county of Galway, where he spent a lot of time as a child. Those early plays actually ended up earning him four Tony Awards, dot, 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 but this is a movie podcast. He was originally born in London, but to Irish parents, so... Being Irish played a great role in his work, and because of his Galway plays, he's considered by many to be one of the greatest living Irish playwrights, which, you know, if you stop and consider the history, is not uh, an inconsequential crowd of people. McDonough first gained wide acclaim uh, with his 2003 play, The Pillow Man, which had smashing hits both in England at the National Theater and then again on Broadway in 2005. So a well-established playwright, but one that had always been inspired by the cinema and, and saw that as his first true calling. He took his first steps into the filmmaking world with the short film Six Shooter, which came out in 2005 and subsequently went on to win the Oscar in 2006 for Best Live Action Short Film. Not a bad start for someone transitioning into the, the film world. The story of In Bruges actually started with McDonough taking a trip to Bruges. Bruges is about a two and a half hour train ride outside of London. Not a hard trip really at all. He was fascinated by the cinematic nature of Bruges, 
um, the Gothic buildings, the architecture, etc., and kind of amazed that no one had ever really taken steps to film a film there. But while it was fascinating, and he was engaged by the history and architecture of the city, he quickly found himself bored. Bruges is not that big. There's not a whole lot to do there. And after a couple of days, he found himself just wanting to go to a pub and get drunk. And this dichotomy kind of led him to the first inklings of the two main characters of in Bruges, the person who is deeply engaged by the culture and the person who wants to go get drunk. Um, and that really was the origin of the script. From there, he toyed with the ideas of hitmen and people who would be out of place in a city like this, you know, but still have dramatic backstories to them. And the script kind of found its way. Originally, the two main characters were London-based, you know, uh, hitmen from London, uh, until we started getting the casting together on our two leads. Um, when we talk about the cast of this film, we talk about two people that really define it in a way that you don't see in a lot of films these days. There's a level to which every film is always different depending on the cast, but if we didn't have the two leads in this film portrayed by who they're portrayed by, the film probably wouldn't work. The film would be, at the very least, drastically different and at the most non-existent. Uh, first off, we have Brendan Gleeson. You no doubt know Brendan Gleeson from Harry Potter. Uh, he plays Mad-Eye Moody. He's been in films for, I hate to say it, sorry, Brendan, decades at this point. But he and McDonough go way back. McDonough had been originally introduced to Gleason through his son, Donald Gleason, uh, who you may know as General Hux in Star Wars The Force Awakens. Uh, he has actually a pretty fantastic film career of his own and is slowly stepping out of his father's shadow. Um, the two had met at a film premiere, and Brendan Gleeson is actually the star of Six Shooter, the, the short film that had won McDonough the Oscars. So before even approaching this film, the two had already had a working relationship with each other that was very positive and was yielding really positive results. The other player we have is Colin Farrell. Colin Farrell, up to this point, had been well-known for larger blockbuster movies. Think things like Minority Report. Think things like Alexander or Miami Vice. These are larger Hollywood movies that he's cast as the attractive bad boy, et cetera, et cetera, kind of thing. And Bruges sort of challenged Farrell to take on a role outside of that norm. And when McDonough first approached him for the role, he was enthusiastic from the get-go. They had met socially once or twice before, but once they started collaborating on Bruges, it became clear that they were going to be a good team together. Colin loved the script for Bruges since day one. And when they first met about the role, he was excited to play a character of depth and not so worried about the film being a comedy or a drama or anything like that. You know, a lot of the productions that he'd been a part of before were dramas, etc. not so much in a comedy role. Um, 
But Colin Farrell's focus on the character really set McDonough at ease. Farrell spoke a lot about what it meant playing a character that was trying not to commit suicide for three days and less about what the film came across as as a whole. He was very focused on the role itself, which McDonough knew was key to making it work. We also get Ray Fiennes, who McDonough very intentionally cast against type. Ray Fiennes was someone who'd never done this kind of film before. They had met briefly after a play once, but never really worked together, and the role really played into both of their desires. McDonough tells a fantastic story of Ray Fiennes coming to set and saying, hey, I've never worked on a film where I've had to fire a gun before. And it's subsequently growing from a mentality of, I have to be very technical. I have to understand how this character would fire a gun. I have to figure out what firing a gun feels like to this character into a mentality of holy crap running down the streets of Bruges firing a gun is a ton of fun and I'm having a ton of fun playing this character and really grabbing onto that thought process with both hands and writing it through to a great performance Ray Fiennes is incredible in this film and you could never tell that he's playing out of his comfort zone. We also get Clemens Posey playing Chloe, uh, the Belgian who sells heroin and cocaine to Belgian film crews and love interest to Colin Farrell's Ray. Clemens Posey is established in her own right, um, but she auditioned in a very traditional way uh, when McDonough went to Paris looking for a French actress to play Chloe. And after a few rounds of auditions was given the full script and knew that this was a film worth giving it her all to. Um, and that kind of locks in our major players of, of the cast. There are of course other characters as always, but this was the core team that McDonough credits as the team that really helped him grow as a filmmaker. Keep in mind, this was his first feature film. He, there were things that he had never even attempted to do before, things that wouldn't translate from his theater background at all. And the cast, especially Gleason and Farrell, really had his back in terms of making sure this production happened the way he intended. There were times that producers and assistant directors would say, hey, we're running over. We don't have enough time in the day to do this kind of scene. We have to cut it. And McDonough would begrudgingly agree, only to be told a couple hours later that the scene was back in because Brennan Gleason had come up to him and said, hey, if you cut this scene, I'm going to walk. I can only imagine as a filmmaker how fantastic it must have been to have that support and have a cast that believes in your vision and your ability as much as you do. The actual production itself, I would argue, actually started about six months before the cameras ever started rolling. I was talking about Brendan Gleeson and Colin Farrell really helping Martin McDonough find his way as a filmmaker, but just as much credit, I think, goes to his cinematographer, Igel Barold, and his production designer, Michael Carlin, who really helped him completely block out and completely figure out all of the different parts of the film that he 
knew how they looked in the script, but not necessarily how they would translate into the scene. Again, it's one of those things that really makes you love independent film and how collaborative and how closely knit these teams can become. So that was six months before any cameras started rolling. Martin McDonough, Colin Farrell, and Brendan Gleeson spent three weeks in Bruges rehearsing. Now, in the film industry, this can be common or uncommon, especially in these days of a lot of improv performances and kind of fly-by-the-seat-of-your-pants productions. But McDonough, remember, is a playwright. He's very specific about the words he writes. He makes sure that there's a cadence and an understanding to every line. And the three of them, Martin, Colin, and Brendan there, spent a lot of time making sure that they had every little detail locked and ready for production. And that's a very common thing for playwrights. And no doubt helped with the overall preparation for the production. And then they started filming. They spent seven and a half weeks in Bruges. And not unironically, they were stuck in Bruges that whole time. When you're in a film production like that, there's usually not a lot of time. Productions, for the most part, you're looking at six days on, one day off, maybe five days on, two days off, if you're lucky. These are things that they don't have, they don't have the luxury to be heading back to London for a little while just to make sure that everything's fine there or reviewing dailies, etc. Everything has to be in town. And in this case, in town means in Bruges. See what I did there? But it's also important that McDonough worked very, very closely with the city of Bruges. He wanted to make sure that they were portrayed well, that viewers of the film saw Bruges in the same way he did, which is not easy per se. One of the main characters does spend the entire film talking about how Bruges is a shithole. But I think at least that by the end of the film, you're left with a positive impression of Bruges, uh, despite the fact that these characters have had not so great of a time there. But McDonough worked very close with the city of Bruges to the level that he spoke at a city council meeting to make sure that all concerns about filming in Bruges were addressed. And Bruges was on board. As I said earlier, there had never been a film done in Bruges and they were excited to have it. The film takes place during Christmas time, and the city of Bruges agreed to keep all of their Christmas decorations up through March uh, in a show of support for the film. Again, the thing to keep in mind is that Bruges' main uh, income source is tourism. Having a positive rendition of this city in a major motion picture like this would inevitably do well for them and honestly has inevitably done well for them. McDonough has said in the past how he's had a lot of people come up to him with no comments per se about the film, just the fact that, hey, they got to go to Bruges. Um, I am definitely one of those people. I endlessly find myself uh, dreaming up scenarios where I could spend two weeks in Bruges. That sounds... Amazing, um, but 
in recording this, I also feel like I'm being a little naive about how entertained I'd be. But we're continuing on. Here we go. Um, the film premiered as the opening day feature uh, for the Sundance Film Festival in 2008, uh, specifically January 17th, 2008, to very positive reviews. Uh, a lot of people compared McDonough's dark humor and, and writing style to that of the Coen brothers or Quentin Tarantino. You know, there's a lot of graphic violence that plays directly into the story and is not violence for the sake of violence. The film itself opened in select cities uh, a few weeks later on February 29th of 2008 and had a very small opening. In its opening weekend, it brought in $459,000, which usually on this podcast, I'm talking about millions of dollars in the opening weekend. But it's important to distinguish here the difference between a massive Hollywood film and an independent feature like this. This was never meant to be a massive blockbuster. Even at its peak, this film was only playing on 232 screens across the U.S. Think about that for a minute. How many total movie screens are there near you right now? I myself saw this film for the first time at the Angelica Theater in New York, which is one of the major independent theaters in New York and I think has all of four, maybe five screens total. Um, I'd love to be fact-checked on that if anyone can tell me better. So $459,000 against a $15 million budget is not great. I think altogether, uh, totally globally, this film made $26.3 million. So we did end up in the plus column if you don't look too closely at, you know, marketing, etc., but again, on a film this size, you're not looking at the $15, $20 million marketing that you are on something huge. I do want to take a pause here and, and talk about February films. So, like I said, this came out at the end of February of 2008. And traditionally, late January and February is not a great month for cinema, a lot of studios will take the films that they invested a fair amount of money in but didn't really pan out or, you know, they knew we're going to have problems or not a mass appeal or something like that. And they'll stuff them in a February release date. You know, you're looking at a time where the Oscars have passed. So no one's really looking for those really in-depth, dramatic films that really make you think. And we're months before the summer blockbusters kick in, where everyone's just going to the movies to see stuff blow up and, you know, see the new Transformers or the new Marvel movie or something like that. February is this weird kind of dead zone. In 2008 especially. Since then, we've gotten things like Deadpool, which came out on Valentine's Day and has kind of been changing the game over the past couple of years. But for the most part, statistically speaking, February, not a great month for films. There are, of course, always exceptions to this rule, and I consider In Bruges a big one to that. But you're never going to see, again, outside of Deadpool, you're never going to see those huge, huge films come out in February. So when we're talking about $459,000 the opening weekend or i think totally domestic we're looking at 7.8 million not great no but not coming out in a time when you can expect the huge numbers 
like I said before, In Bruges was never expected to be a large film that raked in a lot of money. Overall, once the movie did kind of make its way into theaters and the overall Sundance response was very, very positive, uh, it still stands at an 84% on Rotten Tomatoes, which I really, really agree with. It's a very strong balance between comedy and existential crisis. And McDonough is known for that. He does it probably better than anyone else in the industry right now. And... I mentioned this at the top, but this movie for me is a top tier writing roadmap. There are so many large and small details in this film that pull you deeper into it and tie into each other and weave a complex web without pulling you into a complex story. I think my favorite example of this is the coins that Brennan Gleeson's character, Ken, carries with him. In the beginning, he tries to go into the tower in Bruges, tries to pay for his five-euro ticket with all of his coins that he has in his pocket. He ends up with about 490 in coins, 10 cents short, and ends up having to pay with a 50-euro bill. A seemingly throwaway scene that in the beginning just kind of feels like a comic relief almost kind of thing character development, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. We kind of forget about it. And then once all of the drama has unfolded and we're deep in the depths of the third act, Ken pulls out those coins from his pocket and drops them off the top of the tower that he's about to jump off of to clear the way for any bystanders that might be down. This is the smallest little detail You have to look so hard to see it, but it's a beautifully rendered writing device. And that's what this whole film ends up being. And I don't know. I'm babbling at this point. I'm going to... The writing in this movie is incredible. The dialogue in this movie is incredible. Go back. If you haven't watched it recently, go back. Look for the details. Look for the cadence that you get in the dialogue. There's... There's such a depth that emerges from this script that I could I could honestly go on and on and on and on and on and on and on about. But I won't. I'm going to bring it back down. I'm going to bring us out of the depths. And I'm going to pull up to the quick facts. Quick facts is a little piece I do where I go through the quick, easily digestible trivia facts from the film that uh, I find interesting and I think uh, add to your overall experience of the film. So... We're going to start out with this. Originally, in the script for In Bruges, the main characters were English. Uh, They were changed from Englishmen to Irishmen when Colin Farrell and Brendan Gleeson were cast. It was not a large leap for them to change. I think Martin McDonough is on record saying that he only changed around 20 words to to make them Irish and not English, and it wasn't a huge jump. It actually ends up that five characters in in Bruges are also in the Harry Potter franchise. You get Ray Fiennes, who plays the main villain Voldemort. Um, ooh, shouldn't have said that. You have Brennan Gleeson, who plays Mad-Eye Moody. Uh, Clements Posey plays Fleur Delacour in uh, Gobbled of Fire and in the final two Deathly Hollows movies. Kieran Hines plays the priest that 
Ray is sent to kill in the beginning. Uh, and he actually ends up playing Ava Fourth Dumbledore in the final two films. Um, and then you get Colin Farrell, who actually plays Percival Graves in the spinoffs, Fantastic Beasts and Where to Find Him. Colin Farrell actually gave a, a pretty retrospectively hilarious interview in 2008 saying, oh, yeah, he'd love to be part of the Harry Potter world. But uh, he as an actor doesn't get those calls. So clearly, that was not something that really lasted. Uh, in Bruges was nominated for an Oscar uh, for Best Original Screenplay. Unfortunately, it didn't win. It lost to uh, Sean Penn and the film Milk. The film ran for a total of 46 weeks uh, for a total domestic box office of $7.8 million. Again, it's still tragically below uh, its overall uh, production budget, but Internationally, it made $26.3 million. The highest percentage of that came from the United Kingdom uh, at $9.6 million. So, you know, we kind of squeaked by. In Belgium, it only made $1,037,459 uh, and was the 59th highest grossing film in Belgium in 2008. So as loved as Bruges may be, not so much with the Belgians coming out to see this movie. Um, domestically, it was the 167th highest grossing film of 2008. And again, that's with that $7.8 million. Number one of 2008 was The Dark Knight. And this is the part in the podcast where I go, yeah, it was The Dark Knight. I'm shrugging dramatically in my in my recording booth right now. And that's what I got for In Bruges. This movie is very dear to me. It makes me very happy to to talk about it. Um, my first apartment out of college had a had a poster of this film up on the wall, and it served as a reminder of how great independently written, independently made films can be. And I don't know. I still watch this movie, and it brings a smile to my face, even though I've seen it probably, you know, a hundred times. So I'm going to bring it back to my in Bruges, the beer, which I've drank most of at this point. I apologize if I'm not speaking correctly after having this entire 9.5% ABV beer, but it's actually still very smooth, very nice. <clears throat> I feel like as it warms up a little bit, I can taste the alcohol a little bit more, but that's not necessarily a bad thing it's it's very nice um and that terrible stuttering final review of my beer will bring us home this has been the eighth episode of the movie brewer podcast as always my name is andrew scott willis and i thank you for tuning in dear listener and i hope you'll follow me on social media i'm on instagram twitter and facebook at the movie brewer as always, I'd love to hear from you if you have any ideas for movies or beers worth drinking. Be sure to tune in next week when when it seems like I will be diving back into my comfort zone and discussing another movie from the mid-90s. Um, seriously, I have to figure out what movies are best to review on this. Hit me up. Uh, am I doing too many from the 90s? Am I not doing enough? Um, yeah. Anyway, this has been the Movie Brewer Podcast, and I hope you listen in next time.